Hello, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Tapeheads, 80s Music and Beyond. I am Blaine. I am Todd. And I am your humble host for today, I guess. Just kidding. <laughs> so, co host. Yeah, we had talked in a podcast a few episodes ago about uh, the heavy metal music that popped up in 1983 with Quiet Riot, Come On, Feel the Noise, how it kind of overtook the popular music, um, and it overtook the charts for a number of years. Um, The record companies went out and just started signing all of these, you know, so-called heavy metal bands, and the charts really saw this happening. The kids loved it. Oh, yeah. I sure did. And I loved it, too. But uh, some people loved it more than I did. Todd was listening. (laughs) I did not really start listening to heavy metal until I purchased the Metal Health tape from Quiet Riot, and I had the Def Leppard Pyromania album. I just remembered that I had all the first three Def Leppard tapes. Okay. I forgot that I had High and Dry and On Through the Night. Oh, wow. But yeah, those were before. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, <laughs> I guess um, I had also owned Women and Children First by Van Halen, mm-hmm. kind of a one weird album to have out of them, but I did own that. And you had that before? I had it before, come on, f- yes, before Metal Health. Right, yes. okay, all right. Now people are going to go back and look, and probably it came out in 80, no, I guess it would have been definitely before Metal Health. So. Oh, yeah, it was like 1980? Yeah. Yeah, it was well before. So Heavy Metal came out on the on the on the charts, and this is a two a three part, maybe even four part. Might even be more than that. Uh, episodic about heavy metal music, but the first one we talked about from eighty three to about eighty six, and you can go back and listen to that. But this part, we're going to be talking about guitar gods, and Todd started playing guitar in nineteen eighty five, November twentieth. See, I remember that. <laughs> you do. <laughs> um. And he started listening to heavy metal music and started playing along with heavy metal music. Absolutely. And so he remembers all of these guys that he was really looking up to. Who was I looking up to at this time? Oh, I don't know, like Men at Work and the Bee Gees and stuff like that. He was looking up to some of these guitar gods. And so that's what we're going to talk about today. Yeah, you mentioned that this kind of stuff was never really your thing at first. It took a while for you to get into the, the guitar thing. Well, I'm, you know, I'm saying I, I listened to the stuff that was popular on the radio. Right, right. Okay. I, I wasn't out at the record store looking for albums with skulls on the front, that kind you of stuff. You weren't looking for Adrian Vandenberg or... Uh, I didn't even know who that Vinnie is. Vinnie Moore. <laughs> Tony McAlpine. Vinnie Moore, Vinnie Moore, I know who that is. Oh, really? But later, later on, I started listening to... Uh, you know, some of the Ingve Malmsteen and that kind of stuff. How do you know Vinnie Moore? I mean, that's digging pretty deep. Uh, from you. I knew oh. it from you. Oh, okay. <laughs> and uh, Tony McAlpine and all these kind of guys. But anyway, so today we wanted to talk about guitar gods and how all of a sudden they flew up and everyone that was a guitar musician was looking up to these guys and what they threw down on audio tape. The 80s guitar gods are very different from the 70s guitar gods because there certainly were guitar gods before this, but they were like Eric Clapton and Carlos Santana, people like that who don't play the shredding, crazy fast 
solos and scales and everything like like all these 80s guys did. Is that a fair assessment? Oh, absolutely. Peter Frampton, they they all didn't play like this. David Gilmore, he he plays opposite of that. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I think the guy that started all this kind of playing, I think is fair to say it was Eddie Van Halen. Yeah, I remember him, um, and you know, I've read some books about him and stuff that he would, when they first started, and they were playing around the, you know, at parties and stuff in in Southern California. He, I think David Lee Roth told him to turn around on stage because people were gonna would steal what yeah. he did, and he <laughs> they were kind of waiting for their first record to kind of throw it out to everybody, and they certainly didn't want somebody in Southern California, some band, seeing what he did and kind of reproducing that and getting a record contract before they did. Yeah, his two-handed tapping technique that yeah. was very unusual. He taught himself, and no one else was doing that at the time. But eventually, <laughs> before too long, they certainly would. Oh, yeah. And that was everywhere. So when you started playing guitar, Todd, who were some of the guys that you immediately looked up to? Eddie, of course. Um, Ingve Malmsteen. Tony McAlpine. Kiss. Who's the Kiss guitar player? Bruce Kulick. Before that was Vinnie Vincent. Um, George Lynch from Dawkin. Bands like that. Those were my top, top ones. And some instrumental stuff like the Tony McAlpine. That's how I found Vinnie Moore because Tony played keyboards on Vinnie's album. So were you listening to this stuff while you were only a piano player? Yes. Before you picked up a guitar? Before I ever got a guitar, I was listening to that music. And you liked the stuff and you wanted to reproduce it? Yes. Okay, and that's why you bought a guitar? Yeah, because trying to play that stuff on piano just sounds terrible. (laughs) So I remember your first guitar, but where did you buy that at? I bought it at Lee's Music. It was an Ibanez Strat, um, a Sunburst Strat. I wish I still had it. Because um, they turn out to be very good guitars, <laughs> I, mean, I just thought it was a Strat copy that I could—that's what I could afford. But it turns out to be that was one of the models that Fender sued Ibanez over and won. So it was so close uh. to an actual Strat <laughs> that they got sued. <laughs> but yeah, I got it at Lee's Music in Yakima. Um, I went in and tried a few different ones. They had some of the crazy '80s style ones hanging on the wall, and I was like, I don't know about those. And then I just I tried the Strat style one because Ingve was probably my favorite at the time and it looked kind of like his. So I picked it up and since I already played piano by ear, I started picking out little scales and stuff. And the guy's like, man, have you ever played guitar before? I'm like, no. <laughs> picking out solos. And he's like, man, it sounds like you got the knack for it. Cool. Okay. So you, you took that thing home and, and probably... Um... Well, I can, I can tell you what the first song I learned was. Okay. It was As Soon As The Good Times Roll by The Scorpions. <laughs> It starts off with a da na na na. Just four little chords. There's a picture of me on that night, and I'm working on that chord, and like all you—that's all anybody saw of me for about two years. It's just me sitting on the side of my bed, playing scales a million miles away. So your mom must have uh, really loved that. Actually, that's one of the reasons I got a guitar. I also wanted to play drums. 
but we didn't have any room in our house for drums and it was really loud and there was just no way to escape it. So I was like, well, I could also play guitar. That'd be fine. I can have it in my room and maybe play with headphones or turn the amp down or whatever. So at least I could control, you know, I didn't have a Marshall stack or anything, but yeah, it was, it, that worked out. Okay. Could have been a lot worse. All right. So now we know um, some of the guys that you, listened to before and then now wanted to emulate Mm -hmm. so who were some of the guys that then came up afterwards that that you really thought were awesome or the rest of the the world that that had guitar player magazine um guitar world that really looked up to the guitar magazines always kind of featured the same people over and over and over it would have been like warren demartini from rat george lynch from Dawkin, eddie van halen every once in a while they'd have somebody somebody like Alex Lifeson from Rush also. Which they're not heavy metal, but he's a great guitarist. But I was listening to them too, and he had his own style, and I learned a lot from playing along with his stuff. So progressive rock you also listen to. So like Trevor Rabin. For sure, yeah. From Yes. There were other bands around at the time, like Metallica, Megadeth. I was never quite as into that stuff, but I do like a lot of their songs. But I was never like, I never tried to learn a lot of that stuff so you kind of like were more with the form of the scales the more classical part of heavy metal than the yeah meanness of heavy metal right what about you i mean where did you fit into all this kind of stuff well okay so when i started playing guitar i I, it was beatles and so you know when i picked up a guitar i bought a a beatles book and i played along with the chords with with the beatles so that's that's how I, I learned it, and it was not so much that I really wanted to play guitar, but uh, my grandpa played guitar. Um, he played guitar in the Army in World War II. Oh, wow. And um, he taught me a few things before he died, and um, I really never took lessons. I did take lessons down at the music store for probably a short two months or something. I just I didn't have the time or, you know, to want to learn, I guess. Um, I had other things on my mind, like girls and, you know, whatever else. But, um, yeah, that, that's how I was doing with music. I remember the first heavy metal stuff that I used to play along with was the Scorpions Worldwide Live. Yeah, okay. That's more what I was thinking about. And then I remember playing along to the Aerosmith uh, Permanent Vacation album. Oh, great. But that that's kind of where I was, was going. So I wasn't too much into it like you were. You were never bitten by the shred bug. No, I was not. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably good overall you know because that that music has not stood the test of time particularly well but for those of us who grew up loving it and learn how to play it i mean there will always be a soft spot in my heart i have a bunch of this stuff on vinyl i'm still buying it you know i still i'll always love it i'm certainly my tastes have broadened a lot since then obviously but there's still a place for all that stuff in my collection and i listen to it a lot
Can you tell me some of the other guys and, and what their uniqueness was that really brought you to enjoy them or to want to emulate some of their styles? I specifically gravitated toward the ones who were more melodic and who wouldn't just play super fast all the time. They could, most of them. Like Warren Martini from Rat, great example. Like He can shred with the best of them, but he can also slow it down and play melodic and just write cool riffs. So those are the kind of guys I would gravitate toward. Like a way curl junior type of riff. You like uh, lack of communication or like um, lay it down, invasion of your privacy, that kind of stuff. well-written songs because some people could play great but they couldn't write great songs like when Ingve first came out his songs weren't that great he developed that skill over time yeah so Ingve Malmsteen he was a classical he had a classical background and so when he picked up the guitar he was playing it like a classical instrument yes he was playing Bach which was yeah I mean totally different than most other guitarists who would use uh, the the classical type scales but he was actually playing classical music yes yes he was so what are some of the other guitarists Joe Satriani was um, kind of a behind-the-scenes guy for a long time. Um, he was a teacher. He taught Steve Vai. He taught uh, the guy from Primus. He taught the guy from uh, 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 completely different uh, Counting Crows, I think it was. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, so, And then a bunch of that real heavy metal guys like from Exodus or some bands like that. But yeah, he was pretty well-known behind-the-scenes. And then at some point, he's like, well, you like the students. Uh, now it's time to bring out the master. And he started putting out solo albums and stuff. And that was 85, 86. So what did you think when David Lee Roth came out with his first solo album and you heard Steve Vai for the first time? I, that wasn't the first time I'd heard him, actually. <laughs> okay. So, so how about when the David Lee Roth album came out and you heard Steve Vai on that? That album is fantastic and still one of my favorites of the time. I knew who Steve was because of all the guitar magazines and stuff, and I had his album Flexible, because he played for Frank Zappa before that, so he'd been around, even though he was really young. Right, I forgot about that. Yeah, so he'd been around, and he was amazing, and he had a great reputation. So Flexible came out before the David Lee Roth solo album? Yes. Because I knew that album. Yeah. So, um, had you? What about Dweezil Zappa? Yeah, he came around later. To, no, he didn't. He was around at this time. Even his first album, he was seventeen when he released his first album. Yeah, he was a really young kid. On one of his records, he was thanking everybody, and it says, "Warren D. Martini, why can't I just be you?" <laughs> <laughs> 
he hired the producer for Rat to do his first couple albums. Oh, really? He may have gone with somebody different for the one, the album that you and I liked a lot. Well, on that album, he uh, had uh, the people from Extreme on his album. So Nuno Bentoncourt played a lot on that, and um, he had a song where I think Warren D. Martini did play on that song. Mm. I'm not sure. I can't remember off my head what song that was, but there was a bunch of different guys guys on it. Warren D. Martini was one of them. Yeah, that rings a bell, actually, now that you mentioned it. Of course, it wasn't all taking place in L.A. It was taking place all over the world. (laughs) Because there were bands like Dio, who had recruited guys like Vivian Campbell. And there was Gary Moore, who had been out there in Ireland. Vivian Campbell was Irish, too. Um, Gary Moore was playing with... Who's the band who does Boys Are Back in Town? Thin Lizzy. I love the guitar sound on that. Yeah, he used to play with them. I don't think he played on that song, but he played in the band with that bass player before the bass player died. I also love the that they sing about down at Dino's Bar and Grill, and I don't know why, but I just think that's great. It almost sounds like maybe that was some place that they used to go to, but... Anyway, that has nothing to do with what we're talking about, but... <laughs> <laughs> Sure is interesting, though. That's what keeps people coming back to our podcast. Friday night they'll be dressed to kill down at Dino's Bar and Grill. So L.A. obviously was not the only place that these guitars were coming from. Scorpions were together well before the whole L.A. thing, and they oh, kind of changed yeah. their music. I watched a video from them the other night where it was just like this. They were just like this band. Not into this heavy metal stuff. Um... But you know, later on, they were they were doing that. Do you remember what year that was from? Uh, like sixty nine or no, maybe it was seventy two. Actually, wow, yeah, they've yeah. been around since like sixty five. Like their first incarnation of the band was from sixty five. Yeah, that's crazy. That is crazy. What about the guitarist from Europe? I don't even know who that is. Oh, that is uh, John Norum. <laughs> So was he anybody you looked up? I mean, I'm just asking here. Yeah, yeah. I used to have Final Countdown, and I enjoyed it. There's some good hits on there, and his guitar playing was amazing. What about Kiss guitars? Who were some of your favorite? My favorite was Vinnie Vincent, the one who played on Lick It Up and on Creatures of the Night. Great songwriter, specifically. Um, but yeah, he has solo albums after that, and they're kind of crazy with his soloing. He just kind of plays as fast as possible all the time, especially on the first album. It's like, all right, dude, we get it. You can play fast. And I had a Vinnie Vincent CD, believe it or oh, not. I still do. I <laughs> have two of them. I think I sold it, though. <laughs> I have two of them and a record. <laughs> I'm trying to find the second one on vinyl. So what was the name of that Tony McAlpine album um, that I... Actually, I didn't have that. But I think I borrowed it from you. Yeah, that would have probably been Maximum Security. Yes, that was what it was called. That was the really good one. His first album was called Edge of Insanity, and it had some good stuff on it. But the second one was killer. So who are some of the other um, non-LA guitar heroes? 
Uh, there was also, oh yeah, Whitesnake. They were from England. So that was happening there too. John Sykes. And they were around from a lo- for a long time before yes. they yes. had their big hits. And as a matter of fact, I think the, one of the big hits was a remake from an earlier time. Yes, it was. You're thinking of uh, Here I Go Again. Absolutely. And I, I remember one of the, the lyrics for the song was like a hobo. Yeah, that's right. Like a hobo he was born to walk alone or something like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's from Saints and Sinners, I think, if you want to look that up. They also have a new version uh, from like 2017. It's like a reimagined version where it's like they took out everything cool, (laughs) changed the guitar parts and made them worse. Had a bunch of keyboards and made it worse. Changed the drums, which used to be awesome and now are just simplified and way worse. David Coverdale can't quite sing as high as he used to be able to. He sings fine, but he's not like he used to be. Okay, so I'm going to ask you about um, a few bands and just what you think about some of these guitars, okay? Oh, sure, all right. Poison, C.C. DeVille. Uh, Terrible, one of the worst. Well, give me a little more detail. (laughs) Okay, Uh, he was sloppy. He just didn't play any cool melodies. He, uh, I shouldn't say that. I remember his guitar solos. Every single one ends on the tonic note. Yeah, they, they all sound the same. They're not particularly well played. Um, they're not very imaginative. You know, I've read a bunch of books about this kind of stuff, and uh, even like their producers and recording engineers are like, man, these guys, like, how did they even get a record contract? They can barely play. Well, and it's funny because uh, what's the lead singer's name? Brett Michaels. Brett Michaels, he's a really nice guy, and he's actually a good singer. Well, you know him better than I do. He's more your friend. <laughs> He's my friend. <laughs> you know him better than I do. But uh, it's just kind of funny, and they, and they did did kind of make it big for a while, but I think it's just because everybody wanted to hear heavy metal so much. I mean, Unskinny Bop is one of the worst written songs I've ever heard, and that was a big hit, but we'll talk about that in one of our other episodes coming up. But Right, right. Yeah, they have a couple of good songs. I'll give them that. But for the most part, I just find them uninspiring. What about Winger? I actually think they get a bad rap. Yeah, I do too. Yeah, I like some of their songs a lot. I don't have any of their albums, but... They're more of a progressive heavy metal. They are, actually. But uh, just that whole Beavis and Butthead thing, they got a really bad rap with... Yeah. Uh, I can't think of the guy's name, but having a winger shirt. I mean, it was funny. Uh, Stuart. But, their uh, neighbor, the kid. Yeah. Stuart. <laughs> but... Uh, why do I know that? Yeah, that they got a bad rap for that, and they never really could live that down, and it kind of hurt them. But Well, also, Kip Winger used to play uh, bass with Alice Cooper for a long time. Oh, did he? Yeah, I think I do remember that, actually. And then he started kind of wanting to branch out on his own, but he actually plays piano really well, plays guitar, plays bass. He's a multi-talented guy. Oh, yeah. And he's a great singer, and he was good-looking, too, which I think hurt them bad, too. Yeah, he was really good-looking, and so so nobody kind of took him seriously. He also does ballet dance, of all things. Really? Yeah. Oh, and so did Tommy Lee from Motley Crue. Really? And people used to make fun of him for that. And he's like, what are you talking about? What, are you going to play football? You're hanging out in a locker with a bunch of sweaty dudes? I'm hanging out with beautiful women, and they're not wearing <laughs> hardly anything. I'll take that every time. Okay, so what about Motley Crue? <laughs> 
Oh man, where do you start with Motley Crue? Mick Mars is not a great guitar player, I don't think, but he writes awesome riffs. Motley Crue's a great band. Yeah, I think uh, um, what's what's the bass player's name? Nikki Six. Nikki Six, great songwriter. Totally. Oh my god. I mean, he comes up with some great catchy stuff, and Mick Mars, you know, would come along with what you know what he was writing on the bass or whatever. Yeah. Uh, they really catchy catchy stuff, and then Vince Neil was a is it was I'll say was yeah. a very great vocalist. Yeah. You know, when he sang it, it just cut through really great through what they were playing. The thing that amazes me is just how messed up they were so much of the time. It's amazing they could even function well enough to make an album, let alone tour and like, as, you know, as soon as they get off stage, half the time when they're on stage, they tried to be just drunk and high or some combination of all the above at every moment of the day. <laughs> okay, what about uh, Ozzy Osbourne and his guitarists? Yeah, some of my favorites also. Uh, Randy Rhodes is the one that uh, most people think of first. The biggest songs Ozzy had were written by Randy, like Flying High Again and Crazy Train and all that. Yeah, I loved him. Uh, learned to play a lot of his songs. Randy passed. <laughs> Jakey e. Lee took over and did Bark at the Moon, and that was one of my favorite ones, still is. And Ultimate Sin. Bark at the Moon riff is just an awesome riff. Oh, it's the whole album is killer. Yeah, I think it gets overlooked a little bit, or it used to. Maybe it's kind of getting its due. But Jake actually quit after uh, <laughs> he never got his uh, his uh, respect that he felt he deserved. And also didn't get paid very well. Ozzy and his wife are famously cheap. Dio and Ozzy Osbourne were very famously cheap to their musicians. There were some uh, like super groups that were famous for all being amazing, kind of like the David Lee Roth band on Eat 'em and Smile. But there were bands like Racer X, um, yeah. Paul Gilbert. I remember they used to sell tapes in the back of guitar magazines for Racer X. Oh yeah, because I, it seemed like they maybe they didn't have normal record contracts or something, and so that's how you had to buy their tapes. Hmm. Am I completely remembering this wrong? No, I remember that, but I don't know about the record company thing, but yeah, I remember seeing them. Maybe that's just how, maybe they weren't getting the kind of promotion that they wanted, so that's why they they bought ads in the back of those magazines. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, their guitarist, Paul Gilbert, is amazing, and he's still around. He actually lives in Portland. <laughs> oh, really? He's got a pretty big YouTube presence. Uh, no, I don't know him. I've never met him, but I'd like to. Um, there's a decent chance. Could happen. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh, what's the other one I was thinking of? Uh, Mr. Big. Didn't he play with them, too? I don't know. <sighs> anyway, them and Extreme. Do you remember Extreme? Yep. 
Yeah, with um, Nuno Betancourt. So in 87, uh, Guns N' Roses came out. What did you think of the way Slash played? I liked Guns N' Roses. It took me a little bit to get used to him in a certain way because I don't love Axel's voice. So it's like I'm always kind of trying to put him around the side <laughs> and get him out of the way because I want to listen to the musicianship of the band. And I still have difficulty with that. Like His voice just bothers me. But yeah, Slash's great guitarist. They have stood the test of time a little better because they're less metal influenced and they're more bluesy. Yeah, they were they were like a heavy hard rock. Yeah, and blues based. Which brings me to my next band, ACDC. Right. And they've been around forever. Now I've never been a big fan of them, uh, and I don't know why, because I know their music is actually pretty good because mm-hmm. it's just like this really heavy rock stuff. And I say someday I will get into them. And I've heard their hits, of course. You did grow up on Earth. <laughs> I did. So, and and out in West Valley, where the 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 the, the goat ropers loved ACDC <laughs> for some reason. So, what do you think about Angus Young? He's somebody that I didn't like for a long time. Kind of the same as you. Like, I've been giving them their due a little more lately. Great songs. Nobody else sounds like them, and it's hard not to factor that in. You know, it's like you can play one chord, and you're like, "That's ACDC." <laughs> it's very hard to do that, and. I will give them their due, and I always have in that respect. Some of their songs are killer, and they've they've grown on me over the years. But uh, for a long time, I just kind of dismissed them, honestly. I would kind of think that their songs would be better without his brother playing in them if it was just Angus Young playing. Does that make sense to you? Kind of like Eddie Van Halen does it. Doesn't have hardly any rhythm guitar on any of their songs that he's not playing at the same time. Er. Gosh, I can't imagine that. <laughs> I mean, I can imagine it. I know what you're saying, but I mean, Malcolm wrote ma- the majority of the songs. Oh, well, there you go. So I didn't even know that. So. <laughs> they wouldn't have had a band without him. <laughs> so, What about Judd Aerosmith? Um, kind of the same thing. They were, I just saw them as old back in the day when I was growing up and learning how to play guitar. I just thought, well, they've been around for like 15 years already. Well, that's funny because they had a second rebirth when the heavy metal stuff came out. And that's when their biggest hits actually that's true. That's came true. out with that pump and all that kind of stuff. That's when they got really big. We both liked Permanent Vacation and all that. Uh-huh. And uh, we played a couple of their songs in our first band. <laughs> Did we? Yeah, we played I'm Down. Oh, well, geez, that's a Beatles song. And we learned uh, a couple other ones. Permanent Vacation, didn't we? Yeah, we learned a couple other ones. Okay, now he's not a heavy metal guitarist. What about Steve Lukather? I'd put him on that list. He's a guitar hero. Okay. Yeah, for sure. His work on... Uh, uh, Total Four on Rosanna and all his solos. I mean, he's played, I mean, look at his discography. It's a mile long. Oh, yeah. He's played on everything. <laughs> Every hit song, you wouldn't even know it's him. You know, he plays on Beat It. Not the solo, but he plays the rhythm guitar and he plays the bass. <laughs> yeah. Jeff Skunk Baxter. I'm just kidding. 
Now you're just messing with me. Okay. He's a studio guy, right? <laughs> I don't I, Did you know who that is? I know who it is, but I can't think of any of oh, his songs. Oh, he played with Steely Dan and the Doobie Brothers, so you probably yeah, wouldn't okay, have heard right. it. Okay. Both the bands I don't really like very much. <laughs> okay, what about... <laughs> I have tried so hard to like Steely Dan. I have tried for 20 years. All right, what about Journey, Neil Schoen? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, same same kind of thing as Steve Lukather. Like, he is definitely a guitar hero. We talked about Hearing Aid in the Band-Aid episode. He's all over that song. And he's shredding with the best of them. You wouldn't think of him that way, but he can. And there's certain Journey songs where he'll just drop in a little shred, like, separate ways. He can tear it up. So, yeah, I'll definitely put him on that list. Okay, now I'm going to go here. This is He's a blues guitarist. Okay. Um, I just want to know what you think about him. Stevie Ray Vaughan. Uh, like him a lot. Uh, used to have a bunch of CDs of his. Um, guess I do kind of find him a one-trick pony, if I'm honest. But he's got some great songs. Uh-huh. Uh, what do you think? Oh, I love him. I, I mean, and yes, he is a one-trick pony, but uh, just the way that he plays is just amazing. His tone, like nobody sounds like that. So let me ask you this one. This guy is kind of like they're saying he's like the best guitarist that's out here now. Mm. I, I don't know any of his songs. Joe Bonamassa. Uh, not super familiar with him, but I do follow him on uh, YouTube and Instagram. <laughs> so I guess I know him a little bit. I don't I don't know that much about him. I'm not going to lie. But okay. there are some newer people like him and like uh, Andy Timmons, another guy I've kind of gotten into and interested in lately. Very influenced by Eric Johnson. But he also is more of a songwriter. He's also a big Beatles fan, Andy is. And his playing shows that. He's not just a shredder. He's uh, He just sort of writes nice instrumental songs that are rock-based. A little bit of blues, a little bit of rock, a little bit of melody. Yeah, he's another current guy that I've been into. Russ Freeman. Oh, huge fan. I've had so many CDs. <laughs> <laughs> if you don't know, if you haven't heard any of our previous uh, <laughs> podcasts, we had talked about that... Uh, Todd and I listened to a lot of jazz fusion in the early 90s, um, right when all of the grunge stuff came out. So in, in a way, we kind of missed the grunge thing because we were listening to that yeah, smooth uh, jazz, weird stuff. And, and why these 20-year-old guys were listening to that, I have no clue. The girls didn't know why we were doing that, and therefore we got <laughs> no girls then. Well, my girlfriend at the time did like that same stuff. So there you go. Spirogyra. Rippingtons, all that. Yellow Jackets, yeah, she liked them all also. so That's crazy. Yep. (laughs) We clearly had to be together at the time. (laughs) All right, let me ask this guitarist, you this question, uh, just because he just died, Mm. uh, Jeff Beck. Before my time, really, uh, but I've I've been wanting to go back and sort of revisit him, um, or visit him for the first time, because I'm not very familiar with him. But I've watched some videos, and I've listened to some albums, and nobody else plays like him, too. Like, he doesn't use a pick. He plays with his thumb and his fingers, and he uses a lot of the tremolo bar very tastefully and very melodically. Yeah, he's just very interesting. Yeah, I kind of feel bad that I've missed the boat on him. Well, I wouldn't say you missed the boat, because he's got tons of albums. So you can, and if you have Spotify or Apple Music or something like that, you can go listen to him right now so don't give me any excuses like that <laughs> should i wait 
Should I wait until we're done here, or should I just start pulling them up? <laughs> yeah, oh, sure. Okay. <laughs> okay, well, so that uh, kind of gives us a little insight. Did you have anything else you wanted to add about uh, any guitar gods or anything that kind of made a any kind of impact on your musical playing or kind of hit big in the heavy metal days? We've talked about this a little bit before, and there is something to the fact that things that get into your brain when you're a teenager, whenever you're going through puberty, whatever you're doing, whatever you're listening to, whatever you're watching, whatever you're reading, that stuff gets its way deep inside the deepest reaches of your brain. And that's how that kind of stuff is for me. Um, so it's like, if you wake me up in the middle of the night and be like, Oh, play the crazy train solo. I'm like, okay. <laughs> you know, I can just wake up and do it because it's there in my brain. And that's the way all this music is. Well, but, Todd also has perfect pitch too, so that's certainly not going to be a. I didn't mean that to sound like a brag. It's not a brag. It's no, the thing I, that no, gets I understand. Into... But most, a lot of musicians, they they don't hear notes like you do. So, it, you know, I, I I forget things, and if it's not in muscle memory, I I would have to try to work it back out again. You could just kind of say, "Oh yeah, well it's C D A, it's an <laughs> E minor," you know. All right, it's a fair point, but the point of that was. That It's there in my brain and it's there in like the things that get into your brain when you're 13, 14, 15 years old, they stay with you forever. Like movies that you loved and books you loved and people that you loved. And they do and they seem important to you too. Right. There's a great book about this whole subject called Fargo Rock City by uh, Chuck Klosterman. And it's about a kid growing up in the middle of nowhere. But he lived in a tiny town and he would go to Fargo to watch Kiss or whoever was coming through. But he was just this kid, like we were, growing up in the middle of nowhere, fell in love with this music. And even though he knows that, you know, he's a music critic, among other things, he knows that this stuff doesn't last. And he knows that most people don't listen to this music and never liked it. But for those of us who did, there will always be a place in our hearts and our minds for it. That's a great book. It's very funny and very uh, kind of dark comedy, I would say. It's nonfiction. It's about music, and it's about you know being a disaffected kid growing up in the middle of nowhere and really latching onto this crazy guys dressing up in spandex and jumping around like, wow, I, wanted, I want that to be my life. And that's crazy, too, that it was this showmanship of you know, that these guys were rough and tough and mean and, you know, wearing leather and had this huge hair and platform boots. and. But they also dressed like women. Oh, I know. Sebastian Bach had said uh, pretty famously that, yeah, we used to get chicks just by trying to look like them. The more we looked like chicks and used more makeup, like we half the time knew how to do makeup better than our girlfriends did. Crazy. <laughs> I know. And that was everybody. Every band was like, you know, they're wearing spandex, they're wearing the ripped leather. Oh, the leather thing reminds me of uh, Judas Priest when they first started. Rob Halford, the singer, was the one who... Started that. Yeah, he said, hey, you guys, we should try this new look and kind of toughen up our image. Well, now we know why he loved leather so much. Yes, he was seeing that in gay bars. He was not out of the closet yet. But he was going to these bars and seeing these this look he liked, and he thought, man, we should bring that back to the band. And... I don't think most people knew that at the time. There was a guy named, what is his name? He's a TV evangelist. The backward masking, the mess. Oh, shoot. Oh, 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 oh. 
I might have his book. Yeah, what was his name? Bob Bob Larson. Bob Larson. So most people didn't didn't recognize um, the fact that Rob was gay or that he was dressing in this this particular way. Um, but there was a there was a TV evangelist named Bob Larson who used to have a show and he would play listen to this song backwards and you know he'd play another one bites the dust by Queen he says it says decide to smoke marijuana. And he'd play the record backwards, and it kind of sounded like... You got to try it. It's super funny. But so he has a book out that my brother actually got me a few years ago for fun. But we read it at the time. This is like mid-80s. And he was convinced that there were all these backward messages on all these albums. And that, you know, all these bands worshipped Satan and everything. And he even called out Rob Halford for wearing leather and studs, which were the symbols of sadomasochism in the gay community. <laughs> and so that's the phrase he used. And my brother and I were just like, what are you talking about? Like, I would never have known anything about that if it wasn't for Bob Larson. <laughs> so you can, if you really want to dig deep into that, you can find his book called Bob Larson's Guide to Rock. Maybe I'll post a link on that. <laughs> that's funny. <laughs> All right. Well, hey, thanks for joining us today. I um, hope this has been fun. I mean, this is a really specific deep dive into these crazy musicians of the time. I hope it was interesting. <laughs> yeah. No, I think it's you know, it gets, it's interesting. And we're going to do two more parts to this. We're going to talk about power ballads in the 80s with heavy metal <laughs> and how that became such a big thing. And then we're going to sum this thing whole thing up with uh, 87 to about 90, 91 when Nirvana came and shut it all down. <laughs> so thanks for joining us today for Tape Heads, 80s Music and Beyond, and we hope to catch you real soon. Go ahead and look back on some of our other episodes where we talk about Van Halen, um, Yes, Police, Paul McCartney, Band-Aid. Till Tuesday. Till Tuesday. And anyway, you can go back and take a listen to all those, and we will catch you again. Thanks for listening. You can email us at tapeheads80 at gmail.com. Find us on Instagram. You can give us a call at 360... I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us. Uh, thanks for listening. <laughs>